0: EU Futures Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of
1: Europe at Boston University. EU Futures podcast, exploring the emerging future in Europe. I'm Olya Jordanian, an EU Futures project coordinator at BU Center for the Study of Europe. Today is April 10, and I talk to Elizabeth Carter, an assistant professor of political science at the University of New Hampshire. She is a visiting scholar at Harvard University Center for European Studies.
0: Hello, my name is Elizabeth Carter, and I'm an assistant professor of political science at the University of New Hampshire.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about your connection to Europe?
0: I'm a professor of European politics and especially comparative political economy. So basically I look at the economies of the domestic countries uh, at at a member state level.
1: What is the future emerging in
0: Europe? For political scientists, the... The idea of predicting the future is always a dangerous game. And I think part of the reason it's dangerous is because political scientists tend to hold variables constant. So we can talk about what the future looks like in Europe holding some variables constant, right, given the fact that we have economic problems, given the fact that we have Brexit. But we don't know what's going to happen, for example, with the case of France and the French elections. We don't know what's going to happen with Donald Trump and with Syria and with Russia, right? So we have many unknown variables. Um, What we can say, given the current context of Europe, is there's clearly not going to be, uh, you know, we talk about a a deeper Europe. There's not going to be a deeper Europe emerging anytime soon. Um, We see that there's definitely domestic backlashes emerging from countries that appear to have Economically, won in many ways from Europe, such as Britain. Although, of course, some uh, some of the conservatives will say that they haven't been winning; that they've been paying more to Britain, uh, paying more to, the, to Europe than they've been getting out of it. And also, we um, have the losers, who such as Greek Greece, which is um, you know, having a backlash to Europe. And then we have countries in the middle, such as France. It almost seems right now that the only country that's really pro-Europe is Germany. And indeed, maybe part of the problem with Europe right now is that many things are institutionally compatible with with the German political economy and not compatible with other political economies. Um, And this indeed, I think, is part of where the tension is. So what is the future of Europe? Honestly, I don't see right now that there's going to be a whole lot of devolution or decentralization. I don't think that's impossible. But I think that the elites perceive that to be impossible right now. Um, I think if Le Pen was elected, there's going to be um, more pressure to look at different alternatives. Um, I think many member states have been pushing for um, for more rights at the state level, and. Uh, it, we could get to a point where there may be a little bit, I don't want to say quite a, a slide backwards, but there could be some changes in the direction of the project. And honestly, I think that that would be a good idea for Europe. I think that would increase legitimacy and that would increase the ability of member states to have policies that complement their own institutions and to have um, to have comparative advantages that maybe have been erased a little bit um, as they've been trying to all conform to, to one institutional model, which clearly hasn't been working.
1: I see. A common tenet in many definitions of democracy is choice, the freedom to make decisions and to determine our own futures. And Nicholas Newman asserted that what makes democracy special is actually the openness of possibilities of futures choice. What's your perception of democracy?
0: I think that's a fantastic quote. Um, And I agree with what he says there, that choice is imperative for democracy. And I think the problem is, is that people in Europe don't feel that they have a choice. They feel that they have, that their choice, say voting for parliament, that it's really a choice of Coke or Pepsi, right? They don't have a choice to, to slow down the project. And when they have voted to slow down the project... For example, with, the, with the, con- the vote on the Constitution, the response of the European Union was to go around that, right? So if we talk about is this a democratic project or an elite-led project, clearly it's an elite-led project, right? And clearly uh, there's there's not the feeling of a lot of choice at, at the member of the people in the member states. And this is part of the reason that that there's we talk about the democratic deficit in Europe. Um, that's a problem. And if If Europe wants to fix that, they actually need to give people real choices. And that might mean that the choice is not what the elites want. It might not mean more integration. It might not mean more, more convergence of the economies. But that might be what Europe needs to do if that's what people want, if that's what people are ready for, if they truly want it to be a democratic project.
1: To what extent do you think European citizens can influence decision-making at local and supranational level and determine their own futures?
0: I think that there is a possibility for European citizens to determine their own future um, through political organization. And I think that it's best if they follow a two-pronged approach, I think the first thing that people need to do is organize, right? Um, an individual, we like to think that individuals have a lot of political power, but honestly, individuals are much more powerful when they're cooperating with other like-minded actors and, and pressuring um, at both the domestic level and at the EU level.
1: What challenges do you think European democracy faces currently?
0: I think one of the biggest problems facing um, the idea of European democracy is that people do not feel that their needs are being represented, especially at the European level. Um, people feel that their lives have been adversely affected by many changes at the European level, especially the movement to the Euro, um, to an extent um, some of the issues with, with Schengen um, and the, the increased flow of immigra- of immigrants, which is welcomed by some and not welcomed by others, um, but people have this feeling that no one's listening to them. So people may have the right to vote for a representative at parliament. They may be able to, to speak to, to, to go to the streets. Um, they may have, you know, they have political freedoms, but they feel that nobody is listening and nobody is responding. And I think this is part of the reason that we see the rise of the far right because the far right is capitalizing on this anger and people feeling that they are being left behind. And I think that this is especially pronounced outside of the elite groups, right? By elite, I mean those that that travel, those that maybe are in um, highly educated banking that are going to law, et cetera, people who are gonna be largely benefiting from further EU integration. But when you have capital that can move fairly easily, and labor, which can, not even with the European project, there's still, the, the European labor market is not as mobile and flexible as, as it is in the US and probably will never be, right? Because we have still the linguistic differences, the cultural differences, uh, it's just, it's less of a mobile society. And then when you're having the cap- capital that can move and people that can't, you have the potential for, for labor to be in a relatively worse off position. Um, and we have displacement in addition to displacement that comes about from um, globalization and, and changes in technology and that some, some jobs are becoming um, irrelevant. Um, and people are, are blaming this in part on European integration, right? I mean, we have the same type of thing happening in the U.S. in a way right, with people voting for Trump, right? People are worse off and they are blaming um, you know, the 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 political powers that be for having um open borders and more competition and they're feeling that they're displaced because of this. Um so so this is what this is what's going on in Europe. This is why people are angry. And this is why people feel feel that they don't have a say. They feel that they don't have a voice. Um and this is the democratic problem. even, even the more elite people who um you know and I say again elite it's the people who travel, the, the students who have done Erasmus, um, who, who see the advantages of, or believe there are advantages to, to deeper European integration, I don't even think that they feel that, that Europe is truly democratic, right? Um, the thing with Europe from, from its inception is it's always been about visions uh, about visions of the leaders, visions of the visionaries, right? Monet and Schumann, right? That they had the stream, and how is the stream going to go forward? Um, But it was never about what the people wanted, it was about what others could see was best for the people, though they didn't know it yet, and people are getting upset, and not everyone is equally winning from this project, and people are looking for someone to blame. And they need to feel that their voices are being listened to, and if they don't, there really could be some political repercussions.
1: So I have two questions now. How do you see Europeans can make their voices heard more, actually, to to have an influence On decision making. Mm -hmm. And my second question is about whether you talked a little bit about rising far right parties. Mm -hmm. Do you see it's a threat to to the European project and to democracy in general?
0: Okay. Um, The first about how people can make their voice more heard there 's kind of a, a series of different steps that one can do, right I mean, first, one can vote and people should vote right both both domestically and further european elections um, but i don 't know that this is quite enough, and I think that there are a few other ways that people can become um, politically organized to make their voices heard. Um, number one is to to do some form of uh, of cooperation with others that, that feel the same way you do. And this could be taking to the streets to protest. Um, this could be doing meetups like we see um, emerging um, with the, the Cinque Stelle movement in, in Italy, which some people will say is, is a controversial movement. But what it is, it's 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 grassroots, um, people you know got together through meetup, um exchanged information, and actually made some real political change. Um, and they ended up winning the the mayor in both uh, Rome and in Turin, and they have a very particular agenda towards Europe, right? Which is to to leave the the, the euro and to have stricter controls on immigration. Um, and this is a way that that kind of ordinary people have cooperated and changed, having a conversation within the country and through that having a conversation at the level of the EU. And maybe something like this could, and we're talking about a democratic deficit. Well, sure, maybe when you just have a vote for parliament, that is a democratic deficit or feels like one. But um, political organization, political movement that actually results in offices, in a change in the conversation, at a seat at the table, that's real. And that's something that doesn't have to be restricted or limited to Italy. I think that's something that could be a, a model for other European countries. Um so, so, so hope is not lost, and political organization um, can still result in in real change. And the European project is something that's evolving, and it's dynamic, and it's not it's not stuck. It's not necessarily going to keep it, definitely now. It's not going to keep going in one direction without being forward and more integration. It is at a, a I think a, a critical juncture, we would say. And I think there's no time more important than now when we have we have Trump in the US we have the Syria crisis we have an ongoing economic crisis and a weak euro I think now is the time for people to to organize and find others that share their perspective and uh and make change happen I think that that's possible it's not as Italy shows it's, it's not just a dream right? the second question oh the rise in the far right and if that's a threat to Europe Is is threat to Europe a threat to nationalism? To
1: Europe and to European project and democracy also.
0: Yeah, definitely the rise in the far right is a threat to the idea of Europe and to democracy. You know, the whole whole principle of the far right is about division, it's about borders, um, it's about... Um, insiders and outsiders, which has been, in many cases, ethnically defined, right? I mean, there's always been this, this division in Europe and these ethnic definitions in Europe, um, especially we see this, I mean, the Le Pen, the, even though she's she's been getting a lot of attention recently, right, her movement is is not new, um, and, and French tensions especially towards um, immigrants from Northern Africa is not new, Um but clearly, they've been able to tap into something recently, and and what maybe had been a French movement is becoming increasingly popular, right? And we see what's going on also in in Britain and and Sweden, where we've never expected it in other countries, and certainly this is this is a huge threat to to the European project um, because it is it's a it's everything that Europe is against, right? There's this. Europe is about um, cosmopolitanism in a way, openness, um, sharing of information, right? But especially, especially, it's movement of persons and good across borders, right? And this idea that we all share, this liberal um, philosophical, political philosophical heritage. And the far right is is not just against it, but... Um, It's in complete opposition to it. It thrives in opposition to this. Is it anti-democratic? Yes, it's hierarchical. Um, There are remnants, one could say, of of, of fascism, right? There's certainly um, some repression of the voices of some who have a legitimate right to be in the country in favor of the voices of of others. I mean, it's kind of like in some ways that the the far-right they're move, they're trying to move towards the past, right? But it's a past that never truly existed. It's moving towards an imaginary past and a and a and a dangerous, um, a dangerous ideological movement towards something that was never there and never was. But people are scared and they're look, you know, here we have the far right. They're they're really articulating something. And people need something to believe in. And they don't believe in in the EU. So, you know. They're they're being tapped by by the far right, and they're being um, they, they have something to believe in, but unfortunately, it's something that's very anti democratic, very divisive, and uh, I think I think harmful to to both the, the both Europe and the domestic economies. And it's it's shocking how quickly this has this has arisen, and in Europe and in the U.S. too. It's definitely a threat to Europe and democracy.
1: What kind of Europe would you like to see in the future?
0: A Europe I would like to see in the future would be a Europe that puts less emphasis on economic indicators and more emphasis on the quality of life, diversity among countries that recognizes and celebrates diversity among countries, um, and maybe that is a little bit less idealistic with its economic intentions and ambitions. Um, I feel that Europe right now is, is quite a vertical in some ways, as opposed to horizontal, right? Horizontal meaning that each country is respected, that each country is seen to have particular advantages and things that it does well. And I think countries need to be given the space to keep doing well what they do well. And certainly there are things in the different member states that don't work, that don't function, right? And for those things that don't function, there can and should be um, support and expertise that's offered to help remedy that, right? So what I'm thinking about here is, you know, Greece has some major problems with with tax collection and uh, some of their some of their institutions maybe aren't functioning as they should be. Well, maybe first Greece should not have them, so much money loaned to them before that problem was was addressed and it was it was idealistic to think that throwing money at a problem and just integrating a country into a bigger project would fix deep institutional issues um so so that would be something that that needs to be that needs to be fixed and addressed <clears throat> excuse me um but there are also other things that countries do well like right now i'm actually thinking of italy right and this idea of made in italy and because because the european union's Regulations. If we get something that's made in Italy, only one step of a process actually needs to be done in Italy. So if you have olive oil, maybe just and it's a, you know it's Italian olive oil, it only needs to be bottled in Italy. The great that the olives don't need to come actually from Italy. And what does that do to to classic traditional quality Italian olive oil growers? Is that they can't actually differentiate their pro- their product anymore, and they can't convey to consumers what they make. And so, actually, in in, in Italy, uh, different producers organized to, to change the laws within within Italy through Parliament that two stages of production need to be completed in Italy to have made in Italy. But the European Union struck that down because they said it was protectionist, right? But yet, at the same time, what is made in Italy has been a mark of quality, and it means something, and it has enabled small producers to thrive and differentiate themselves. Um, We see the same thing going on with French wine, that, um, you know, French wine, we have champagne, uh, which is very regulated, and, you know, 100% of grapes need to come from the Champagne region and made in a certain way, and the European Union tried to to decrease that to 85% of the grapes, right? But the French producers actually organized through the Ministry of Agriculture, um, their Domestic Ministry of Agriculture, and then through that... uh, to, to the Council of Ministers, to be able to actually have a French opt-out where the French were allowed to over-regulate, right? Which is great. The French need to be able to protect what they perceive provides them with the comparative advantage. Here, they believe that they have a comparative institutional advantage in wine production, and I agree with them. Um, but there's been this idea at the level of the European Union to roll back regulation, And this idea that that will be best for every member state. And um, that's false, right? What that does is it converges, or it tries to converge, domestic institutions into a one-size-fits-all, which will necessarily do away with any domestic institutional comparative advantage. Um,
1: Is there anything I didn't ask you about? but you have thoughts and want to tell us.
0: Um, One important thing I think about with the future of Europe is that the future is open. The future is not determined. Um, Often people only see, um, see, see the future in one particular way. And for Europe, that's always meant the future is further integration, further growth. Basically, it seems to me that The future is Europe, as defined by the elites, have been more or less something like the United States of Europe, right? That the the United States was something to be emulated. Um, And I think that maybe that needs to be questioned. Europe does many things, um, not just well, but better than the United States does, Um, especially when when we talk about um, production, uh, environmental regulations, labor regulations. Quality of life, right? And maybe Europe should think about how to be, how to put a different model forward, um, and a model maybe that uh, that reflects and respects what is collectively defined as European values. Again, such as the environment, human rights, the arts, quality of life. Um, this one-size-fits-all is a problem for Europe, and it's a problem internationally, and it's an ideology, and it's a dream. And if we want to have strong political units, we need to turn our attention back to the people that constitute the polity and and have something that is truly um, of the people and and reflects what they need, because nobody knows what people need more than they do. And Europe would be well informed to, to to look at what the people need and want. Thank you so much for this interesting conversation. Thank you very much for having me. been listening to the EU Futures Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University, funded by a Getting to Know Europe grant from the European Commission delegation in Washington, D.C.